Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. There are hundreds and hundreds of people living out authentic Christian lives in all sorts of corners of this wide brown land, doing all sorts of things, whose lives have been powerfully shaped for good by Cornerstone. Like so many really good things, it grew out of a small idea with a big vision. It's quite a story. It grew out of the passion to make practical sense of the teachings of Jesus Christ and to see how that could work in lots of different Australian communities. The Cornerstone community began in Burke 34 years ago. So it's well past time that Open House recognised and celebrated this uniquely Australian endeavour. Paul Rowe is one of the co-founders and I'm so glad to say he joins us on Open House. Paul, welcome. G'day, Lee. Great to see you. Paul, before this seed of an idea was sown in your mind, give us a sense of where you were up until that point. Well, I was a Sydney boy, grew up in uh, North Shore, a small brethren church I grew up through, my mum and dad planted, uh, so life was church. Went through the usual evangelical questions about what it all meant for me. My dad was a great storyteller, my grandfather before him, and uh, they engaged me, particularly my dad engaged me with... uh, the story of the Bible, but when I hit university at the end of the 60s, uh, what was a different matter? Because it was one thing to say you believed in the, the book, but then you hit a lot of hostility and a lot of uh, big questions that I really wasn't prepared for. How did that change you, or how did you answer those questions? I didn't really cope with it very well. Most of my friends weren't remotely or that interested in religion, and there was a lot of dynamic, amazing things happening on campus. You know, there was, uh, well, drug, sex and rock and roll was very, very yes. large on the screen. And, and we were, you know, being challenged about issues, concrete issues like Vietnam and anti-apartheid. And there was lots of violent protest and radical politics and, and a, a sort of a heady feeling that swept the world in the student world that somehow, you know, students were going, we were going to change the world, that we could really make a difference. And, and in many ways, it left the Christian faith behind. It didn't, it didn't. I think uh, there were responses that sort of went with it, like the Jesus people. And I suppose to some degree we're on the fringe of that here in Australia. But you're right, I think the Christian world probably didn't see how large those questions were and how important it was. And you just couldn't stand on the Bible and sort of preach at people or say, you know, straighten up your act. I don't think we were all that well prepared for answering the deeper questions that were being asked, and legitimately too, I think, by by young people. Yes, indeed. And part of your answer was the seed sown of Cornerstone. How did that begin for you? Well, it really began out of a friendship, Lee. Uh, My about second or third year into university, I was fortunate to meet a bloke who'd come from the opposite direction. He was a bush boy who'd grown up down in Yakandanda in in Victoria from a pretty... um, hard-headed, atheistic sort of family. And he'd come to faith through studying as an engineer and he'd come the opposite direction. He'd come to it through seeing the reasonableness of what it was to be Christian and thought, well, if this is true, then you've got to make your whole life rotate around this. Mm. I'd grown, I'd been socialised into it uh, and I was at the stage where I had to pull the whole thing apart and put it back together again. But he, he was exciting. I mean, it was life-changing. He didn't just sort of have intellectual answers to the questions I was being asked but he also matched it with a sort of robust Christian lifestyle that was activist. He, he'd, he'd been involved in Bible translation over in Mexico, then gone to England with a campus crusade team in Sussex University where they sort of had to cut it with the hippies and the 
and the beatniks and whatever that were sort of <laughs> pretty powerful there at the time and seeing quite an amazing sort of set of things happen there that were very great stories to hear, you know, and the sort of thing that for a young bloke like me, I was thinking, well, that's that's really what I want in my heart. I wanted to know how you could live that kind of radical Christian lifestyle. So something very practical seemed to be percolating. Yeah, he, he became a friend. Like uh, the gospel began with friendship. Jesus was a great friend yes. and he won people through friendship. And I think Laurie did that for me. He didn't just sort of preach, but he said, do you want to come with me? I'll take you with me and we'll go out on campus and we'll talk to people, which we did. Like We, we began this thing called the Jesus Christ World Liberation Front, which is four <laughs> of us, I think. And uh, Sounds of, very subversive. It was Paul. very subversive at the time. Well, it's been pretty, I suppose, from the start, it's been yes. subversive. But it was we mixed it in with the radicals, I suppose, at the time. And we went out on campus and just started to put the Christian case out there. And the response? It was absolutely life-changing for me to yeah. watch... First of all, to watch Laurie handle people with grace but vigorous intelligence and had good answers and saw him sort of not just beat people down and sort of knock them over and win the battle, but he won the people by both, uh, you know, the fun of it and the enjoyment of the debate, but also intelligent answers. He taught us, I suppose, how to live in the spirit of Jesus, to, to take the gospel seriously. If this is really true. He told us a story I'll never forget. He said, well, when he was in Mexico, they were preaching on a campus and a Marxist student jumped up in the middle of the audience when he heard their presentation and he screamed at them, you Christians, if this is true, why haven't you told us this before? Because the truth is urgent. That became a sort of a catch cry at the beginning of the 70s for quite a revival, I suppose, or a change that swept through the youth groups that I was amongst right across Sydney. And we saw that message and this sort of determination to say, let's take this seriously, let's take Jesus seriously and go out there and put our case and see what how it fits, like put it to the test. So what took you out bush? That's a big step. It's one thing to rev people up at a camp or at a you know, church service or something like that, but how do you make it life deep? You know, How do you really get it to, to become whole of life for people, not just something you do at, at, on occasions, mm. but how do you integrate it into the whole of life? And that's a huge question, and that's one we've been wrestling with for 35 years, I suppose. But um, I think Laurie, from his background in anthropology and, and sociology, he saw it more clearly than I had at the time. I was fairly young and learning the ropes. He was about 10 years older than I. But he could see that if you took that socialisation principle of um, living together... Uh, in community, which was God's idea from the start. I mean, yes. He made communities the heart of the human race. He began a people called Israel out of a family and he gave them a blueprint for how to live as his people. Um, the, the Old Testament's the record of pretty much how they missed it, but they got it <laughs> right at, on occasion. For a very long time. It took them a while. They were slow learners, but that, that's encouraging in some ways. But eventually Jesus came and he sort of grabbed the heart of it and he said, right, he took a group of men and women with him and said, no, now this is what we're going to do. We're going to create a new community. So that was sort of the seminal idea, Lee, that we were, we were working with. And we said, okay, what will we do with this? So Laurie was already living at Burke. He was uh, working as an engineer on his brother's dairy farm there. And he began to talk about why don't we start something, I suppose, a bit like a kibbutz, you know, where the students could come and work to pay their way. We would study together part of the day and we would live together in a community that was a, a working community and share life with them. So the, the teachers weren't just sort of in a pulpit or in a you know walk in give their lecture walk out but we would actually 
live our lives and our families' lives out in front of and with alongside the students. So the aim was education? Well, the whole socialisation idea, uh, yes, it's, it's educational, not just in the sort of formal sense, although we did have lectures and all that sort of thing. We felt the education spilled out into the paddock when you were down chipping the cotton or whatever, you were picking the pumpkins and stuff. Um, and that there was a great education just being in a very hard environment like Burke. I mean, you arrive yes. in Burke in summer to start the course and it's 35, 40 degrees and your first job's sort of irrigating out there on the flat uh, under a big sky and it's hot and days are long and there's lots of flies. Yeah. That is a test of spirit. And then to live in community with a bunch of people that you don't know and get on with them, that's an even more severe education. Yes. Uh, Character building, I think. For everybody. Cool. You know, yes. We used to say it was a bit like being chucked into a... You know, those barrels used to sort of smooth stones out in, you know, we all climb yes. in, you chuck all the rocks in there and you turn it on and we all rumble around together and we knock edges off each other. It's very, very hard. It's 24-7, but it's a very, very powerful way to teach. So Burke was the forum. Yeah. So I said it's education, but it's education in life and faith, really, isn't it? I think the two go together. I mean, I don't know how you can live life without faith. You know, yeah. the two things are integrated and somehow um, you've got to see faith spelled out. It's not just an intellectual thing and it's not just a mystical thing but it has a lot of concrete shape to it and you can, when you watch people actually, when you watch a farmer who's planted a crop, worked hard, drought comes, knocks it out and what does he do then? And we watch men in Burke, Burke's in a land of extremes, like that is Australia you see heat, you see drought, you see floods, you see it all and you watch how people respond the resilience does their faith hold up under those kind of pressures what do they do do they spit the dummy do they curse god and die what do they do and i think or on a day-to-day basis watching farmers deal with crises watching the teachers work alongside the students when it's hard when it's not working those that's where faith and life meet and i think that's how god meant it to be it wasn't meant to be in buildings or in lecture halls really but it was meant to be worked out on the ground in practice on a daily basis. Side by side. Mm. On Open House, we're with Paul Rowe, one of the co-founders of Cornerstone. Paul, it strikes me that this is a work that probably only could have been done outside of the big cities. Back in the early 70s, a guy called Alvin Toffler, you might remember, wrote a seminal book called Future Future Shock, Shock, which was big in in those days when we were young students with long hair. Did you have long hair? Oh, absolutely. Right, okay. When we were long hair students, you didn't have your shirt unbuttoned and a body shirt, did you? (laughs) I did, actually. Oh, my goodness. A very bright green one. What, flares? I used to plant. Yeah, flares, clogs. We we were there. We're on the same page. Sorry, back to Alvin Toffler. Alvin Toffler said one of the things he felt that would help people cope with the rapidity of change that was he saw coming, and I think he was pretty prophetic because he said it would shock people, the change would be so rapid they wouldn't be able to cope and they would be looking for ways to kind of hold life together. One of the things he talked about was zones of stability outside of the cities. And I've often thought, well, that's in a way what we did. We chose to sort of move outside the city where the pace was a bit slower, where life was kind of a little more rural, and a little more basic in that if you didn't water it, it didn't grow, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you had to get up and make it happen. You couldn't just go to the shop and buy one. You had to work out what to do. So I think in that context, and also a little bit remote, so you couldn't jump in the car and drive home to mum when things got a bit hard, yes. but you had to wear it. How long did people typically stay for in this education of life and faith? <laughs> some lasted a couple of days, some <laughs> lasted a few weeks. But the idea was a year year on the farm. Like that's the basic training was a year and it yeah. still is. That's boot camp. So we study, work, eat, sleep, 
drink everything together there and share life. So, and we had a pretty tight mentoring program where the students had the chance one on one with staff. So we mentored them through the year and helped them unpack things in their lives, answer personal questions, and. I guess our goal, Lee, was to see them in, begin to work out what they believed, why they believed it. So they had to have a robust sort of answer system for the questions they were going to be asked. And then how to do it. like watching, And that was where the practical came in. They'd watch us do it, not just hear us talk about it. Tell us about a family, particularly in the early days perhaps, who moved out there, trusting in all this and taking this great leap of life and faith. Uh, I was visiting a bloke yesterday up Port Macquarie and he and his family came uh, and they had to put up with some fairly tough circumstances. It wasn't very flash accommodation and the fathers would work and mothers would try and help out where they could with the kids. So the study program would be four hours a day work, four or five hours a day and then shared community times and things. And after that year, where did they go? Yeah, good question. Uh, some, I think in the early days it was harder for families to sustain it. So we've, in these 35 years we've learned a lot of lessons and we've reached yes. a point now where we've, we've been working hard on this sustaining that kind of community missional outlook uh, for the long haul. So right now, for example, the last five years we've had clusters of families who, after being with us for a while and done the first year, then a second year out on team, we sent them out into country towns a third year of leadership studies, and then they joined together into a small cluster set up in a, a rural community and begin a sort of an urban mission there, uh, mainly just in a street on a street-to-street basis, just where they are. I think Jesus' idea was to have working models of the kingdom of God. Like wherever the church has gone forward in history, whether it be Paul's mission band or Jesus' mission band, the Irish monks, John Wesley's groups, the Clapham sect, um, we find... They're kindred spirits that we study and think about a lot and we use them as models about how you can be an agent for change, how you can be a working model of the kingdom of God that's adaptable, uh, that's not sort of fixed so much as a, like a, the urban church model, a fixed model, but there's a second model which is like this. It's a little more uh, unstructured, m- more flexible, and you've got a group of people really committed together I mean, for the long haul. And community is really important, even though the community might be small. Yep, well, the community is what's the attractive thing. Right now in Bendigo, we've got a cluster of four families there. And in the last five years, I've seen remarkable things happen just living in a little neighbourhood through the school, through running a community garden, through having kids in their homes that's drawn university students are coming through the door wondering, what is it that you've got? We A lot of them were disillusioned with church. We see ourselves sort of straddled out there in the middle between the church and the the, the unchurched or the disenchurched or whatever they are, uh, and and providing this sort of door where they can come in and be part of it without sort of having to perform or anything and just join us around a meal table and that somehow we can bring church to the meal table. So the the graces that we talk about, it's not just saying grace at the table, but it's doing grace at the table. Yeah. And that's the winsome thing that brings people to want to know what is going on here. As Jesus did. Exactly. So as you mentioned, it's not a religious community or organisation. It's been very non-denominational. Why was that? Wherever we've sent teams, we've tried to work alongside the churches. We've usually said to them, look, we're not here to come along and run your whole program. Like if we send a mission team there, although we do end up helping with youth groups and things, but... Uh, we sort of straddled from there back out and a lot of our energy goes into the people who don't or wouldn't go to church. So we try to sort of join things or 
provoke things or structure things so that the people who are unfamiliar with church or disenchanted with church can sort of find a home and begin to discover the kingdom of God, a working model of it that's not necessarily structured or run from a, an organisational stance. So we've worked alongside all sorts of churches and we send people back to all sorts of churches and we've we've bred ministers and pastors and all sorts of people who work in churches. So it's not like we're distanced from them, but we've felt there's a role to play in Australia for the 70% who tick the box on the census and say, yeah, 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 we're Christian, but have no idea of the story and we want to live the story out so it's not coming down from the pulpit, you know, it's not six foot above contradiction, but they can sort of walk around it and poke it and ask all the rough questions they want to. Kick the tyres. Kick the tyres. So a favourite story, is there one particular story that you can recall encapsulates the importance of what you've done and why you've done it? A couple came with their little girl, they were with us and then they were beginning to sort of get excited about the shape of the kingdom of God and how they could actually be part of it. The, the thing Jesus talked about, that, that idea of people living so that God is sort of the center of everything. It's the whole of life. So they're beginning to practice that. Her dad was an alcoholic. He showed up in Burke to visit, arrived drunk, poked around the edge of it, um, began to like what he saw, hung around, became the handyman in the place, eventually came to faith and saw his life really, really change, although he struggled always with alcoholism the rest of his life. He was killed on a motorbike just outside the front gate one day, having just led the other town alcoholic in Burke to faith. And uh, it was a great story. Colin Buchanan wrote a song about it, actually, uh, called uh, Courageong. Uh, Laurie said at the funeral, you know, Bill could have died with a handful of old mates standing around the grave, but 300, two, 300, a lot of them young people came back to Burke to mark Bill's passing because they'd seen something in his life and wanted to honour him and uh, he was buried out in the bush out there on a beautiful day in September about 20 years ago. At the funeral, you know, his other daughter and son were... There was a redemptive moment where they were reconciled to their dad after 20 years of estrangement and that was an amazing day. I mean, that's just one story. I mean, there are so, so many... I guess the one I mentioned, the, the the cluster working down in Bendigo and seeing environmental student who kind of was poking around the edge of what they were doing, finally took a New Testament, went bush for a week with a bag of oatmeal and, a, and the New Testament walking in the bush, did the whole primitive thing, but as he read the Gospels for the first time, began to understand what Jesus was about. I think we're, we're finding ourselves reaching into the lives of such a wide range of people. I've seen young doctors come uh, to study with us who were on the treadmill to, towards you know, being doctors and all that meant, but they took time out. And as one of them said, I, I, I realised that I, I didn't want to just spend my life uh, curing bodies, like lengthening people's life, but I wanted to deepen people's life. And uh, he's now, he was on staff with us for quite a while, but he and his family have had a very large impact. And I see the other end of things from Bill the alcoholic to Andrew the doctor. And that, that excites me because I see all sorts of talent being set free. I mean, I mentioned Colin. Colin came, I've got to say this before he says it, is that he really hated country music when he came to Burke. Oh, did he so. really? <laughs> You converted him. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I didn't have anything to do with it. He, I think he began to see that there was a somehow country music told stories yes, and definitely. stories 
sort of fitted his strength, and he's a great storyteller. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, we had a little bit to do with him, but he's a friend. But um, to watch his life and to see how uh, he's expanded his gift to touch the lives of so many tens of thousands of kids and families, that's very rewarding too. Paul Rudd's a wonderful story, and I'm so pleased and uh, honoured that you've come in to tell us on Open House. Mm. Thanks very much. Wish you all the best for the future. Lee, thank you. We might have a listen to Karajong from Colin Buchanan. In his annex made of besser bricks and corrugated iron I can hear the roar of footy on a Saturday afternoon Currajong's got his slippers on He sips a mug of coffee He's glad to share the game With a little company In his annex made of besser bricks And corrugated iron I hear snatches of a childhood Back in Sydney years before Carajong chuckles and shakes his head and lights himself a rolling. He's found himself a home now, it's time to settle down. And when the time comes, they can take me down the track to the clay pan and lay me by the windmill by the board. Don't let their tears cloud the changes of my final years They can say, Karajong, you came a long, long way In his annex made of besser bricks and corrugated iron An old soldier reminisces about Korea and the war Carajong carries his memories His back still carries shrapnel He fought bravely for his country He might never have come back When the time comes they can take me down the track To the clay pan And lay me by the windmill by the board Don't let their tears cloud the changes of my final years They can say, Karajong, you came a long, long way In his annex made of besser bricks and corrugated iron I see Currajong fight a battle with a habit that won't die. But Currajong knows it won't be long, the battle will be over. He's not afraid to fight till then, and he's not afraid to die. When the time comes, they can take me down the track to the clay pan and lay me by the windmill by the board. Don't let their tears cloud the changes of my final years They can say, Karajong, you came a long, long way A long, long way, Karajong
Kara Jong, you came along. We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.